Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. There's a lot of talk these days about how we might encourage more young people, particularly girls, to pursue careers in science, technology, and mathematics, the so called STEM fields. And while I'm naturally sympathetic to that goal, I'm not always convinced that the sorts of things people often try to do to achieve it, like designing ads to convince kids that science is fun or science will change the world, is the best way forward. Because the simple truth is that science is fun and is important, but just certainly wouldn't know it from the way that it's often taught in schools. If it were up to me, I'd simply point everyone to Jenny Nelson, professor of physics at Imperial College London and one of the world's most accomplished solar cell physicists, and also a passionate, articulate, and deeply likable advocate for harnessing science to improve the world. I was quite lucky um, in that I had uh, two scientists as parents. <laughs> so They were chemists, weren't they? Or, or, or That's right. Both yeah. my parents were chemists, both inorganic chemists, and they met through chemistry. So I grew up in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, and, um, and so it was quite a, a natural thing. Um, to be interested in, you know, I mean, I mean, for it not to be, for there not to be any barrier between me and an interest in, in physical science, you know, particularly having got a mum who was a physical scientist, because not many people have that privilege, really. Um, so that was, you know, so I mean, science was always accessible. I mean, I was interested in, in lots of things. I've always been interested in you know, language and writing. I've, I've, I was very interested as a child in, in history, possibly because of circumstances in which I was growing up. Right. Um, you know, but, but science was, you know, sort of, there was no barrier, so that's, it, was, it was available. Um, and I, I, I mean, I suppose I would have had a somewhat, a, as, a, as a child, maybe a, an aversion to, to chemistry because... Because your parents were both chemists. <laughs> because my parents were chemists. Were you, were you an only child or did you have... No, 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 I had, I, had, I had two sisters who had a greater aversion to, to chemistry <laughs> than me. It's <laughs> quite a legacy Although, your parents. Every, everybody is, is quite technical, but yeah. So, so anyway, um, I was very interested in... As, as what I remember, you know, when I think about this, I was very interested in the ideas of light and colour, you know, as a, as a little kid. And I remember asking my mum, what subject do I have to do to understand light? I don't know what age I was, but, you know, let's say maybe seven or eight. You know, before we had disciplines, what subject do I need to study to understand light and colour? And she said, physics. And it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that's that's how I would... This is what I remember as as a, as, as a child. Um, so what and is then it? after my, so we, we then did, 
you know, sort of a, a joint science kind of program curriculum in, in school until the sort of exam years. And another thing I remember quite clearly is that after the end of my first year, so I would have been about 11, they had a you know, parents' evening and the teachers meet the parents and my science teacher um, told my mum that he would shoot me if I didn't do science. Because <laughs> you could choose to do science or right. you could do domestic science, which means cooking and sewing. And, right. You know, it was a girls' school, so those were the options. I see. <laughs> So he, he or she, was it a he? It's a he, he was yes. A he, right. He's a, he was a passionate fellow. Uh, obviously believed in you, but that's, that's a fairly strong belief, right? <laughs> I, at the time, it wouldn't have been such an unusual thing to say. I don't think he had any intention of doing it. But, but I do remember that. He said he'd shoot me if I didn't do science. So, <laughs> so you I were strongly science. encouraged to do I was science. strongly encouraged, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, you said your sisters were technical. Did they go off into scientific disciplines or, or mathematics or applied physics or engineering? Well, my or? elder sister's an architect, ah. um, although you know her, her, her real love is, is, is art. So she's sort of on the, on the border, I suppose, of right. engineering and art. And my, my younger sister is working in programming and IT teaching. Right. Uh, these subjects, yeah. What is it about? What was it about color? Was it color's interaction with light, or what? When well, you were small, like the, the idea that you could put together different colors and get white, get nothing. You know, this, this, this. I thought was fascinating. I thought, how does that work? You know, and the fact that when you mix paint, you get something different to when you mix light. And I don't know. I think I just, you know, I just. I get fa if I have a monochromator and I look at the colours coming through, I get there's some wavelengths I really love, you know, and um, I, I I don't know I can't explain it, but this you know right. sort of understanding this right. was something that always fascinated me. Interesting, and and so you weren't shot, you went off. <laughs> <laughs> you, you Not went yet. Off. <laughs> You went off to do science at, at, at school, yeah. and what was that like? Did you have particularly supportive teachers, uh, with or without additional weapons? Did you, did, were, were, you, uh, were you stimulated in, in any particular way? Were your original inclinations reinforced? The, the way things education was in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, the schools are segregated in three different dimensions. So <laughs> okay. I was, you know, amongst others, I was at, I was at a, 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 a girls' school. Um, so so just let me interject for a moment. Yeah. So three different dimensions. So there's religion, yes. there's sex, yes, and then what's the third? Uh, whether or not you pass the 11 plus. Okay. <laughs> So I was at a Catholic girls' grammar school. Okay. So, so, um, I, I, we, as I said, there were there were there were no barriers, um, and all that that also continues at school because it was a, a girls' school. Then, you know, there wasn't any stigma attached to doing science or not. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, uh, you know, I enjoyed many subjects at school. I mean, science I found. You know, you could finish your homework more quickly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not to say that I disliked the things where you needed to think and, and write, and it was harder, you know, to get the right answer. I very much enjoyed um, writing and composition. I enjoyed, but I enjoyed, I think, probably all subjects. I can't remember anything I didn't enjoy. Um, 
but, 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 you know, science sort of... Uh, well, you know, I was going to be shot if I didn't do right. it. So. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, you, did you have a particularly influential teacher other than, well, that one that, uh, that, whom you've already mentioned? I had a pretty good physics teacher um, at A-level uh, who was... You know, it, it's, it's hard, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a kid to really appreciate what you've got. I mean, I think we had pre pretty good teachers. And our, our physics teacher at A-level, Joe Stark, he was, a, was a bright guy. And I mean, he, he you know, I mean, I mean, certainly I was encouraged. Um, but I, I couldn't say, oh, you know, I, it, it was only because of Mr. So-and-so that, that I did this. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't really like that. Right. There were several good teachers. And then you went off to, to Cambridge to do your, your uh, then, Yeah, then I went to Cambridge to do a physics degree. And what was that like? It was very different. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how so? Um, well, you, you know, I mean, you, you go from, you know, you go, to a, you, you, you go from an environment where things are easy and, you know, you're, you, you, it's easy to succeed. And then you go to an environment where people come from a lot of different backgrounds. I mean, I was 17 when I left home. People were, you know, older, more experienced. Um, and you're not really supported. You know, you have this is your timetable. And if you try to do everything that you're expected to do, it's actually impossible. So you have to make these kind of grown-up decisions about where do you apply your effort, how do you split your time, and so on. And I was away from home. You know, I thought I was going to be great at physics, and then I didn't find it easy to be great at physics in Cambridge in the first year. But by the time we got to the end of the third year, I was more comfortable, and I had I could identify the areas that I that I liked. Yeah. Were there were there any gender issues at the time? It seemed like when you were younger, uh, that was just not on the table. Your mother was a chemist. Yeah. You were very well supported growing up. When you went to Cambridge, did you experience any any sense of discrimination because uh, you were a woman doing <laughs> doing physics or doing science? I mean, the, the, you know, there were some uh, you know members of staff who <laughs> you would make remarks that nowadays you just you know would just wouldn't be acceptable. Hmm. Um, but it didn't. You know, I mean, I noticed these things, but it, they didn't upset me a lot, and they didn't really stop me. I mean, you know, you certainly were very aware of being in a minority, and it felt quite lonely in that way, you know. Um, it would have been nice to have more people like me. Um, but, I, I mean, I think the sort of the foundations, you know, from sort of home and, and school were, 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 you know, sort of prevailed over, you know, there were... It, it was more, more difficult to sort of be, um, or sort of, you know, feel that you belong to the right. subject right. as an undergraduate than it had been as a younger kid. And when you were an undergraduate, were you already starting to think about a, a research career? I mean, this is something that you had been fascinated by, uh, broadly speaking, when, from, from a young age. You were interested in light and you were interested in color, and here you were, an undergraduate at Cambridge, um, moving along in physics, and you, you, you solve some time management issues. You start realizing how to succeed. You start uh, doing reasonably well. Were you thinking, I'm going to be a, a research physicist, or I'm going to be a scientist, a professional scientist, or not so much? Not at all. Okay. 
So what were you thinking? What was going through your mind at the time? Um, I was very motivated to use, to find a way to use science in, you know, I mean, for, I suppose, in a social context for the improvement of standard of living, for the prevention of war, for those kinds of things. And by the time I, I graduated, I wasn't, um, you know, a lot of my, well, so you have two things. I mean, one is what everybody else was doing, and my classmates would kind of be choosing where do they go to do a PhD, but without seeming to have really thought this is what I want to do, but rather, oh, Imperial College is a good place, or that kind of thing. And, and I thought, why would you do that with your life, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, I mean, I, I, I just thought, you know, there were, I mean, at the time, so this is the 1980s, and, you know, there was a lot of concern about the threat of nuclear war, um, and also a growing awareness of all sorts of resource issues to do with, you know, food, water, health, and so on. And um, I was a scientist, and I wanted to see how could I use my background to try to improve things. So I wasn't thinking about, I mean, and also at those days, I mean, you didn't, you didn't have to have every step uh, mapped out the way it is for students nowadays. Right. There was more give in the system. You could, um, you know, you could spend some time doing not very much and figure out what it is, you know, that you, you wanted, wanted to, to do. do. It, it wasn't, it wasn't exceptional sort of not to have steps mapped out. So then in my, sometime in my final year, uh, a friend of mine in London who was running a technology centre um, to kind of enable, you know, young people to learn about computer technology called me up and said they were setting up a bigger centre um, and uh, would I like to be involved? And this was with support from the, uh, was Greater London, actually, effectively the Greater London Council at the time, so from the mm -hmm. Metro Metropolitan Authority. And it was a kind of a social intervention sort of initiative with the aim of kind of enabling members of the com community to learn about new, t new technology, so like computer technology. I mean, you would laugh at it now. Well, they were new, new technologies, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how to, how to make use of databases and, and how to make, uh, you know, how, how to make use of computer technology, of kind of information technology right. to sort of help with different types of, you know, uh, I suppose, social and uh, small-scale economic um, issues. issues, yeah, that's right. And had you had much experience with I knew computers how to computer or program. I knew how to program from my okay. degree, yeah. And okay. then I learned, you know, new operating systems and stuff. I mean, it was a bit of an undefined job, um, right. but, but that's what I did for a couple of years, yeah. That must have been very interesting. So you had an opportunity to, to merge uh, technical orientation with social passion and, and I would imagine that that would have been quite rewarding in, in many ways. No? <laughs> it, it, <laughs> At yeah. least in theory? Up, up, yeah, <laughs> up to a point. Um, but then, you know, as you, know, as you can probably see now, but I couldn't see 
then. You know, I was I was twenty. Um, I needed. You know, in, in you know, you have plans, but in the end, you want to be you want to have the conditions in which you can deliver something and and feel you know that's a good approximation to the plan. And uh, the the job wasn't really well well enough defined for that. I, I got involved with another um, activity at the time, which was which had actually had some more bearing on what happened in the future. Which was that some of our uh, this 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 centre that I worked for we had a, a, an advisory board on which there were two physicists mm. from Imperial College as it happened, and one of them contacted me to say one of his colleagues was looking for some help with a problem, um, and uh, what he wanted was. So the colleague was a guy called Keith Barnum, who later was my postdoc supervisor. But at the time, he was involved in doing some pre preparing some evidence for the Sizewell inquiry. I don't know what was, that is. It was it was a public inquiry about whether or not there should be a new uh, nuclear reactor in a certain part of the UK. Okay. And um, he was digging into the history of nuclear reactors in the UK and what had happened to the. Um, Plutonium that had been produced, and uh, he reckoned that you could, from the from the published data on energy produced and fuel used, he reckoned you could work out how much plutonium must have been produced, and needed somebody to help to write a computer program and analyze data. Mm. Um, and so I got involved in that as a as a in a voluntary capacity, um, and it was. That was very. That was that was a very sort of very exciting actually. It was published in in Nature, and then when I actually <laughs> started my PhD in a different topic, but about uh, six months later, I remember my PhD supervisor marching into the office after uh, three weeks or so after I'd started saying, "I hear you've been publishing papers in Nature. <laughs> you have to give a seminar about it." <laughs> And that was uh, yeah. Okay. Well, let, let, let me back up for yeah. for a moment. Yeah. So, here is my supposition. Tell yeah. me. Tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. Um, you're doing this work, um, which has uh, a rewarding amount, at least potentially, of social relevance, but you're not able to have the opportunity to embrace intellectual challenges in a in a well-defined way. And if you so, like, yes. And yes. so here you get this opportunity to work on something which is not only socially relevant and quite different, but also is a concrete problem that you can uh, use your toolkit and, and, and mm -hmm. get excited about doing. And this intrinsically, I think, I would imagine will be intrinsically interesting scientifically and intellectually, trying mm -hmm. to look at, at the level of plutonium, deduce the level of plutonium which must have been produced mm -hmm. given, given these constraints and so forth. Uh, and you think... That's interesting, and that's intellectually resonate. It intellectually resonates with you, and from that experience, I can see that you might think, "Oh, I should perhaps." Here's I'm supposing, uh, maybe I should do more things along these lines, broadly defined. I should be doing more research-oriented type of things. I should be applying my not just my skills, but my orientation, my mm -hmm. intellectual orientation, towards solving cutting-edge problems, or at least addressing them. But I miss that whole link into 
Bristol and the PhD and how you wound up, <laughs> how, how you wound up over there. So first of no, all, no, no, I know, I know, I know, I was jumping ahead with that. But. <laughs> so tell tell me if if some of my suppositions were right or wrong. Uh, but more significantly, um, you, you have this experience um, uh, over here doing this interesting work on, on uh, production of plutonium, and then you wind up over there. So how did that happen? I mean, it was, it was my, it always my, it, it was my, I, I hesitate to say intention, but um, ex let's say expectation that I, I might do research if I could find the right thing, but I didn't want to do it for, except, except if I had a, a good motivation. Um, and in my final year of university, I hadn't had time to think about it. Um, so I, the, the other thing is I forgot to tell you the conclusion of that study, which was that uh, there was a lot of plutonium unaccounted for, so you know it was a, a problem. It's something one should take care of if you're going to build more nuclear reactors. Anyway, um, so it was always my intention, but I hadn't had a, a chance to kind of find the right thing, the right topic. I didn't know if there was such a thing. And then I made, after I'd been uh, out of university for about a year and a half, I made a more sort of concerted effort to try to find uh, supervisors who might have the sort of topic that I would be interested in. Um, and I went to see, my mum my arranged for me to go and see her boss, who was a guy called Mike Pence. And uh, he was a very sort of, you know, politically engaged scientist and was responsible for setting up the science faculty of the Open University. Hmm. So, you know, quite, I suppose, Rev, you know, something you would probably engage with, but really quite revolutionary in the way of thinking about how do you uh, make science accessible to, you know, somebody studying at home, right. etc. Anyway, um, he made some suggestions, and um, I followed them up, and one of them was to work with, to, to contact a guy called Michael Berry in Bristol, and uh, I had a chat with, with him, and in the end, I, d I was trying to decide, because I also was investigating PhDs in this sort of science policy area, but then I decided that I would do uh, the sort of more physics, uh, straight physics PhD with Mike, and then after having it, could do other things. That was a sort of, you know, I sort of fell down on that side of the argument, let's do more physics and then see what we can do with it. So I did my PhD. So I, so I went to Bristol and did a PhD with Mike Berry. Right. When was what his work on the, the topological phases and theory mm -hmm. phase? When 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 was that exactly? Around about the same time, but it's not what I was doing. Right. I was, <laughs> yeah, but I was I was wondering. But <laughs> yeah, I had uh, roommates who were office mates who were doing that. Yeah, working yeah. well, working on more more related things. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, and so, how was that experience? Did you find, as you were doing your research, that you were getting uh, more and more enthusiastic about it as time went on, or, or not, not quite so much? Or? It, it, it wasn't quite like that. Um, it, 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 it wasn't, I mean, so he gave me a really good problem, uh, because he knew what my interests were, and, and he had done some preliminary work shortly before I showed up, which was looking at the 
optical properties of soot mm. in the context of a nuclear winter. So mm. it was around about the time that the, the sort of nuclear winter hypothesis had been sort of publicised by um, Richard Turco and, and others in the mm. US. So the idea that if you had a nuclear war, um, sunlight would be blocked uh, by the soot particles that were thrown up into the atmosphere, particularly into the stratosphere, and that would reduce the amount of uh, sunlight reaching the Earth, and the consequence would be a global cooling. So it's not what we worry about nowadays, but right. um, that was, you know, and then, but nobody had, re but it had, had only been addressed with a very and simple model. Yeah. And one of the things that, that needed to be addressed in more detail were the optical properties of soot. And then this is an interesting problem because when soot is generated, you have small carbonaceous particles, which are very small compared to the wavelength of light. But then as time goes on, you know, what happens to them? And if they, um, if they coalesce like a liquid would, then eventually the specific optical density of the, of, of the aerosol would reduce. Mm -hmm. um, but if they coagulate and stick together in a more sort of rigid fashion, a more space-filling fashion, then there, uh, if it's a very porous structure, then um, as aggregation goes on, the specific optical density hardly changes at all. Mm. And that was the problem. So they'd done, he and a colleague had done some preliminary work, and then there was, you know, a, a, a very nice opportunity to dig in more detail, and that meant, you know, learning about suit and properties and it was a theoretical PhD, and then um, writing a code to simulate the growth of these structures with different fractal dimensions. So that was the, the parameter mm. that would distinguish um, properties, and then simulate the interaction of light. So presumably, you have you have to find mechanisms as to how they're going to coagulate, or under what conditions they would, and and or or, or not not so much. Um, well, there already was literature on um, different types of aggregation. So another okay. sort of topical, uh, it was uh, something that was uh, being studied at the time, where sort of things like diffusion limited aggregation, and this was. Uh, re related, so fractal geometry was a thing at the time, right. and it was known that um, if you use diffusion-limited aggregation to generate structures, that they would then have a fractal dimension. So that was already known. So I just needed to find an algorithm to make, you know, so it, it wasn't, I mean, I was certainly uh, building on uh, ideas that were already there, but then I was trying to apply them to our particular case. So it seems like this this model building uh, and computer simulations. It seems like you were you got in at quite an early stage of, of all of that. In retrospect, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying there was a preordained plan, but it seems as if you you were you were doing simulations and and, and computer model building and so forth mm -hmm. at, uh, at at a at quite an early time in in the, in the world of simulations and research. I don't know. I mean, I haven't. I never. I never thought of it like that. I certainly mm. did it at quite an early time for me. But <laughs> 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 I mean, there was. Yeah. I, I mean, of course. You know. Yeah. Sure. I mean, if you go back, kind of, you know, ten years before that, then what you could do would be much less. And if I repeated my PhD today, I could probably, you know, complete all the simulations in an afternoon. <laughs> um, so. So you you did that, and and presumably your 
I'm speculating, so correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong, but your appetite was to some extent whetted for, for, for research in that particular area. I mean, here it seems to me you're doing something which is socially relevant mm -hmm. uh, insofar as these scenarios had certainly been mooted and, and uh, I remember hearing about nuclear winter as anybody did who, mm -hmm. who was uh, around at that time. Um, you're putting uh, many, much more meat on the bones in terms of trying to get a, a, a thorough physical understanding of mechanisms and what might be likely to occur, what might not be likely to occur, and under what conditions. Um, so you're doing rigorous science and you're doing something which is socially relevant, you mm -hmm. seem to, and, and you're doing something with light. So mm -hmm. you're going back to your yeah, yeah, seven yeah, yeah. or eight year old <laughs> <laughs> orientation. Although not much with color. I think I could have done more with color. But yeah, 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 no, sure, light, light, yeah. Um, and then? Oh, and, and then, well, but I, I said the, I mean, doing the, although the, the PhD was a really good topic, and when I look at it now, I think it was a really good topic. And in fact, I had to open my thesis a few couple of weeks ago because I something was relevant to something I'm doing nowadays mm. but but it but at the time it was actually quite tough because I you know it was a small research community I was the only person working on this topic I was very isolated mm. and um, uh, you know it was it was it, it was you know I'd gone to a different city where I didn't know so many people and it was it was not a very easy time and uh, I remember when I finished, I was sort of, it was a bit of a triumph, actually, when I managed to finish my PhD. I mean, not that, I mean, I, I, I finished it uh, on time, but I, you know, there were many times during it when I really felt like giving up because it just, you know, for those reasons, I felt isolated. Um, so when I did finish, then I remember telling people that I was never going to darken the door of the physics department ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and for a year, I, I, I didn't. Uh, but what did you do during that year, just out of curiosity? I did all sorts of voluntary work. Mm. Yeah, a variety of different things. I did some work with. I, I did some work with a sort of, uh, you know, science anti-war sort of organisation. I did some work with a, a charity that was taking care of people with mental handicap. Mm. I did some work and I worked in a bar to make some money. I, I did a number of different things. Um, and I... And everybody told me, you'll soon get bored. Well, not everybody, some people, adults, if you like, told me you'll soon get bored. But I, I really didn't get bored during that time. But, but anyway, um, I, I heard about... I mean, I think, you know, this, this position about I'll never darken the door of the physics department ever again, it was kind of, um, there, was a, there was a but, or an unless, which was unless there's a, a really good topic. And um, the really good topic turned out to be solar energy. So uh, what, what happened was... Um, after I, I had actually got a, 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 a sort of I had made an application for a fellowship to work on a, a topic where I could have used my optics of fractals and applied it to a new a then new type of solar cell called disensitized solar cell, and I might have done that, but I was then offered a position as a postdoc 
by the same guy who I'd worked with on these calculations of plutonium. Um, and he was changing field from high energy physics to solar energy. And he was starting up a new group in the solid state group at Imperial College. And he wanted a postdoc to help. So they, they would do experiments. He would have a PhD student. And then uh, he thought there was a role for a postdoc to do calculations um, to design the, to, to sort of drive the the experiment, you know, drive and interpret experimental research. So he contacted you during this year off that you were having, or was it? We were we were continually in in con we sort of often in contact because of the, you know, the prior work that we'd done right. and, and follow up to that. Yeah. So at some point he contacted me and said, "Would you be interested?" So. Yeah. That seemed like a from from what you've described. It certainly seems like a very good fit for your interests and inclinations and yeah except I didn't I didn't have any experience if you like in semiconductor physics that wasn't where I did my PhD but but, but you said that he had come from high energy physics so he was <laughs> yeah. in the same boat <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and yes of course I mean coming from uh, you know the, and it's something I often tell people is that uh, sort of modeling skills are quite transferable you know, you can if you if you, you you can you can you know you can move from problem to problem once you have the basics. So, so yeah. let's talk about some of the basics of solar yeah. solar energy. Um, and one of the things which I think needs to be established, and again, I'm using myself as a as a guide because uh, it's very easy for me to say I wasn't really aware of this or hadn't thought about this, mm. but it, it seems as if. From my understanding, there are three basic types of solar energy. Mm -hmm. um, so um, one can look at, uh, at direct thermal mm -hmm. um, transformation. One can look at, at photochemical transformations, and then photovoltaic. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe you can speak about just speak about that generally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Yes, I mean, I would say that's, that's right. Three, three, three routes or three types of, three forms in which you could extract um, the energy that you've converted. And in every case, I mean, I think we're, we're talking about the, the interaction of solar photons with condensed matter, usually with the solid. So at the heart of it all is there's, you know, the, the, the photon-electron interaction. So you're photon comes in and then you know we need to kind of have in, in mind a kind of quantum picture of matter that 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 matter um, uh, is composed or can be viewed as a system where you have a series of of energy of, of states at different energy levels um, available to be occupied by electrons and depending upon which system you have you have a different configuration of states, you might call that uh, the band structure, or you might call it the density of states. Um, and the electrons that are in that solid attached to the atoms, whatever, will fill up the energies, fill up those levels until they're used up. Okay? And and then in any in any solid, um, you could in principle promote an electron from one level to a higher level a level which is exactly the amount higher as the energy of the photon that you absorb. Um, and then it has energy, it momentarily has a higher 
electrochemical potential energy or potential energy anyway. Um, and then if you can somehow catch that energy, you can do something with it. So in the, in the simplest thing to think about is probably heat. Um, so let's say you have a solid with many energy levels, so something like that would appear normally appear black to us yeah. because any photon of any color would be absorbed. And uh, you absorb a photon of any color, <laughs> excites an electron, and then because of this sort of continuous density of states, it's easy for that electron to relax um, through sort of, uh, you know, th through interactions with, with, the, with the atoms in the solid, uh, it can easily relax. And every time it has a collision, it gives out a little bit of heat. So um, you absorb light with something with a black color, and generally it'll heat up because you're absorbing photons, they dump their energy, and then that energy is dissipated by the relaxation of the electrons back to the ground state. Right. Um, and so that's what would happen uh, if, if nothing else intervened. And then if you wanted to do photochemical or photovoltaic conversion, you want to catch that electron before it's relaxed back down to the ground state. So to do that, the first thing you need is um, to interrupt that density of states, because this process is very rapid. Right. Um, but if there's a large gap between higher and lower levels, then crossing that gap is possible, but it's much less likely to happen and it takes longer. And so if you have a, a, ba a gap in your density of states, then you, you have the opportunity um, to capture the excited electron when it's sort of... Uh, when it, when, it, when it falls just to the, the top of the gap. And um, in, a, in a photochemical conversion, you would have, you know, maybe some uh, light-absorbing molecule, uh, an excited electron, the excited electron would remain in an excited state for a period of time. And then if in your environment, in whatever, you know, device you have created, there are other species which have got higher electron affinity. They would still, uh, if they have a, an energy level available for the electron, um, but closer to that level where it's been, where it's resting, right. um, then there would be a, a chance, a high chance of, of converting the electron to the other species. We would call that charge transfer, photo-induced charge transfer. And then after this, that, and that would basically be the first step in a chemical reaction, whereas the thing that you excited would then be left with a positive charge, right. and the thing that had accepted the electron would be left with a negative charge. And then other reactants would get involved, and in the end you would generate a new, you would have converted one chemical species into something else, and the something else would have a higher chemical potential energy. So you could then convert it back to its original form by burning it or, you know, and, and extract some of the electrical, the, the chemical potential energy that had been embedded in it. So that would be the idea behind photosynthesis right, or right. solar fuels. Right. So then with PV, this is photovoltaic energy conversion, is very much like that, except um, that we don't need to have another species we need to have electrodes. Um, so you've got, we can think about, um, this is our material, it's got a band gap, it's absorbing photons, um, light shines, 
electrons are promoted, they relax to the edge of the conduction band. And then, if we've made an electrical contact to that material, there's a way out. Um, and some of the electrons will make their way out. You can then think about them traveling through a wire, let's say, to an external circuit. And uh, the trick with designing a solar cell is to make that process very efficient, to make that process very likely. Right. Um, I, my, my understanding from mm. uh, an early part of your book, um, maybe I should just say, I was surprised to learn that a photovoltaic cell was actually developed much earlier than I would have thought. So <laughs> I don't pretend to have any expertise at all in this. The only thing that, that I had heard of was the photoelectric effect and, it's, and um, Einstein's reinterpretation of that yeah. so as to understand that light actually comes in these little packets of mm -hmm. energy, these quanta of energy, and his thesis in 1905 for which eventually he won the Nobel Prize, and mm -hmm. maybe he should have won it for something else as well, but that's a whole other... I don't mind him getting <laughs> <the first electric. laughs> so that's So I was thinking, okay, this was something that people were thinking about or puzzling over at the turn of the century and so forth, and then, and then I read that some people had been doing this in the, uh, had in been, 1830s. I mean, 1830s, uh, 1850s, 1860s, yeah. so, so the, the history of, of development of this goes back much further than I have been aware of. Well, it depends what you want to call a solar cell. Right. But in the 1830s or, or thereabouts, I mean, there's quite a bit of interest in, there's quite a bit of interest in voltaic effects. So, and I know a bit about this because Last year, or earlier this year actually, I was giving something called the Wheatstone Lecture in King's College and I had to relate my lecture to Wheatstone, so I had to find out what Wheatstone had been doing <laughs> that could possibly relate to solar cells and I discovered that he was very interested in voltaic effects. So, but at the time there was quite a bit of interest in electrochemistry, so the idea that if you put into an electrolyte a metal and another metal and then you see a current flow. So that would happen. So nowadays we would interpret it in terms of different metals having different work functions. Mm -hmm. And so charges, and this is of course exactly what happens in a solar cell. You basically achieve different work functions by doping um, front and back of a semiconductor wafer differently. And then there's a, a driving force for charges to flow from one way to the other. So um, that, that was something that, that, that they were interested in, that scientists were interested in. And amongst them there was a Becquerel. Um, who, who, who observed, working with this type of system, he observed there was an effect when electrodes were exposed to light. Normally they would have been studying things in the dark, um, but he, it was Antoine, I think, was it Antoine or Edmund, I don't remember, but... Well, I yeah. started with an H. I, 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 anyway, I can't remember. I can't. It doesn't matter, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, it was the younger Becquerel, right. anyway. Um, he, he'd observed a photovoltaic effect. Hmm. But it wasn't in a solid, it was in a, an electrolyte solution where you have one electrode, another electrode, and right. then they look at charge transfer through a charge flow through a, a, a membrane. Um, so that was known, and then, you know, when did they start making things with, with solids? 
and uh, so so that would have been a bit later in the century at least I mean of course I can only comment on what I've read sure you know who, who knows who was making solar cells in there in the backyard yeah 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 exactly all through the 19th century I mean there could you know, it could easily have happened why not mm. you know it's going to happen if you have the right conditions um, but when uh, sort of you know physicists and, and, and engineers started to work with kind of um, electrical contacts to semiconductors so I suppose this is the predecessor of understanding diodes and so on then there were there were some conditions in which when you make two electrical contacts to a semiconductor and it was exposed to light a current would flow and again it's the same reason that you might have two two contacts from the same metal but it's still possible that if you have the same metal that the contacts would be electrically different because they were deposited differently mm. and I think that was so I think it was um, Adams and Day who were working in King's College in maybe the 1870s had reported um, a photovoltaic effect in selenium and they measured it with a Wheatstone bridge so I found another <laughs> <laughs> there's the link <laughs> so I found another link <laughs> and but but it was also quite cool that it was done at King's College as well you know, right. but anyway anyway um, and so there was quite a bit of work of you know so we you know they didn't have silicon and they didn't even really have germanium but but selenium was a semiconductor that was available people were studying and then you know things like um, copper copper oxide another so copper oxide is a semiconductor and that was another system where um, photovoltaic effect had been observed mm. so so it was kind of known um, and I don't think anybody I can't say what people were thinking but I don't see any reports of of people thinking about using it before the middle of the 20th century yeah. so very basically I have light coming in mm -hmm. I'm exciting these electrons mm -hmm. to go up to an energy level and somehow I'm capturing them so they don't uh, they don't sink back down mm -hmm. again to mm -hmm. the ground state and I'm driving them into a current that uh, from which I can do work and yeah. and all the rest of that um, but there are some from this basic theoretical structure and understanding as I understand it there are um, there are some limits to how mm -hmm. much of this I can mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually get out um, so before we start talking about which materials are best for whatever reason, um, tell me a little bit more about this idea of detailed balance and what assumptions I have to make and, uh, and, and what are the limits and constraints on how much um, of, uh, of, of current or, and or power how I can actually solar, get out of how this. How much solar energy you can turn into electrical energy right. is the key thing. Yeah. Right. Um, so the... <laughs> The, the first... So, sorry to interrupt you, this is um, that's my wife, Urena, by the way, and that's my dog, George. So. Hello, I'm Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just close the door. <laughs> um, so so this, this, this question about how much of the solar energy you can turn into electrical energy was actually addressed quite soon after the first serious solar cell which came out of Bell Labs in the mid-50s, 1954. That was because they discovered how to dope silicon two ways and then they could make a diode and then they could make a solar cell. So about um, five or six years later, William Shockley um, 
uh, who was a leading semiconductor physicist at Bell Lab, and, and a guy called Hans Kreiser worked together on the, the, the problem of what's the limiting efficiency of a solar cell. They, they actually weren't the only people. There were others who, who looked at this question. And the basic, the basic um, uh, they, they did a calculation. And uh, you, you would then, if you do the calculation, you'd find the limiting efficiency is a bit more than 30%. So why is it 30 and not 100? OK, and the reason is basically that the sun gives us energy in many different packets. You know, so you have a solar spectrum, and there are many <laughs> advantages to us that we have a spectrum. <laughs> but then you want to capture it and convert it with something which has a unique um, energy. This is the band gap of the semiconductor. Right. So if you imagine you have a band gap which is that big, then photons which are, have a lower energy will pass straight through. So you can't, they're wasted, you can't do anything with them. Right. And what about the photons with a higher energy? Well, they'll be captured, but then because this rapid relaxation of the sort of charges through the band structure to the band edge, they, they lose some of their energy through this process of thermalization, and that happens very rapidly. So you, it's hard, you know, some would say impossible to catch that energy. Right. And so you're left with... So it has to be tuned perfectly to the band gap. Yes, except if you have a spectrum which has every colour, then how do you do that? Right. I mean, so in theory, the you could take your spectrum and you could split it into, you know, several different parts and then have a solar cell which, whose band gap is tuned to the different parts. And then each of those would operate quite efficiently. So the, the, the limiting efficiency of a of a solar cell for monochromatic light, if you, if you could tune the band gap, would be close to, not exactly, but it would be close to 100%. Um, but we don't have a monochromatic sun, we have a panchromatic sun. Um, and, whilst, so, and, and that's basically the, the, the fundamental limitation, is that you know, it, your, your solar cell is tuned, it's going to be optimised for conversion at a particular energy, but the sun gives you many photon energies, many wavelengths. So you have to make a compromise. And that compromise limits the efficiency to around about 30%. Right. Um, so not, let's talk a little bit about materials before we talk about materials that might be able to somehow circumvent some of, some of these. Uh, well, you can't circumvent the tuning of the sun, but uh, one, one can imagine <laughs> moving forward. So let, let, let's, let's talk about some. Uh, well, let, let me just say, why silicon? What, why is it that silicon seems to be so well suited to um, to solar cells? Well, silicon is not ideal in terms of band gap. So, with this optimization problem, you've got the solar spectrum. We can't do anything about that, and you want to find the the, the band gap which will convert the energy most efficiently. That's the one parameter, if you like, you've got to play with. And uh, the band gap that you would find if you solve the problem is, is, is about 1.4 electron volts, whereas silicon has a band gap of 1.1 mm. electron volts. So it's, it's a bit off the optimum. Um, and so the, the limiting efficiency for silicon, rather than being 33%, is 29%, about. Um, so it's not actually ideal. Mm. You wouldn't, if you were designing your world for solar cells, you would choose another semiconductor. But 
I mean, silicon, as you know, was developed very intensively for microelectronics, everything, every solid state electronics, the whole industry is based on silicon. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the first decent solar cell was made from silicon. Um, and so that was then a basis on which to, to, to build. Um, and uh, it, it's really a, a case of, you know, it, it's, it's, you know there, there are a number of factors why, why silicon. So one, it, although it's not perfect for solar energy conversion, it's not bad. Yeah? Um, number two, huge amount of uh, technological experience built up in the processing of silicon. I mean, so solid state electronics was all based on diodes and a solar cell is basically a diode. Yeah. Um, maybe you would optimize it a bit differently, you need a large area, but, but basically the idea is the same. And uh, the, sort of the sort of commercial development of solar cells followed the commercial development of, of silicon. And then, I mean, there's a lot of it, yeah. you know, so uh, there's no you know, issue in sort of raw materials for, for silicon, I mean, there will be silicon on earth for, for forever possibly right. longer than there there are people you know um, and and the, and the know-how is already there how to process it and, and, right. and so on so okay so that that that, that answers that um. it, it has <coughs> if you like if you if you if you try to encapsulate it, it means silicon has got a head start through the microelectronics industry yeah and as you said it's not ideal but it's not bad it's exactly yeah but if we were to start anew, yeah. if we were to think, well, let's forget about um, any substance or material that has had a head start in the microelectronics industry, yeah. and let's think about the ideal structures that we might be able to come up with yeah. um, to produce the most efficient type of solar cell, we might start in another direction. And my understanding is this gets to some of your work with... Uh, organics and plastic solar cells and so on. So tell me about your work um, in trying to construct, um, as it were, an ideal solar cell from, from first principles. Yeah, well, there are two different questions embedded in there, mm -hmm. and one is how would you make the ideal solar cell, and the other one is These particular what's the story about right. Right. Plastic solar cells, right, and they're, sure. not, they're not quite the same. Right. They're not the same at all, actually. Right. Okay, <laughs> but but to answer the the first one, maybe it's it's worth mentioning. They, you know, we, we talked about silicon, but the the best solar cell of all, um, that's known today is made from another semiconductor, which is gallium arsenide. Right, and uh, this is work that was developed in. Uh, Caltech and uh, a guy called, um, I mean, a guy called Eli Yablonovich, you might have come across, was, was very much involved mm. in, in, in this. But, but, but what they've done, um, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's, 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 it's clever, um, and it's, you know, the sort of thing that everybody would, would dream of liking to do with their material, is they've improved the crystal quality. So the, the, the basic fight when you, so you have a certain band gap and for each band gap there'll be a limiting efficiency. And uh, in, in the case of gallium arsenide they've already got 29%. The best silicon solar cell is about 25-26%. 
uh, again, and where's the best gallium arsenide is about 29%, and then the limit will be, depends on how you choose the spectrum, but let's say 33. Um, they've done something really nice, which is they've improved. So, so, and the reason why you're not there is usually, why, why you're not at the limit, would be in real life, uh, some of these electrons, in fact, most of these electrons, <laughs> uh, will, uh, you know, decay, or some of them will decay. Um, before they're collected. Uh, but if you really drive things to the limit, in that limiting picture that Shockley and Quiser did, um, they said all avoidable loss pathways are switched off. So your, your, your material is perfect. Right. There's one thing you can't switch off, and that is the radiative decay of electrons. So if you can excite an electron from here to here with a photon, um, you cannot prevent the decay of an electron from here to here with a photon. They, they, it's got to happen. So, and this is where detailed balance comes in. So, if you could, ha you know, if the so we, in quantum mechanics we talk about matrix elements as being the things that enable process or control the rate of processes. The matrix element for photon absorption um, and for uh, for for photon absorption, electron promotion, and for electron decay and photon emission are the same. Yeah. So if one is non-zero, the other is non-zero. And that's the thing that you can't switch off. And what they've done with the best gallium arsenide solar cell is they've improved the quality of the crystal so much that they're almost at the radiative limit. Um, so they're actually at the point where if they can control the path of light inside the device, um, they can improve the trapping of light inside the device and prevent the emission of light um, through the sides of the device. So if they can, they slow down even the, they've, they've already slowed down non-radiative recombination and then what they did to improve efficiency was to slow down radiative recombination and they did that by designing an optical structure where the escape of photons was, uh, you know, pre prevented, was, was reduced. Just as an aside for me, so yeah. I, I get the sense of here are the constraints, here's what you, here's what you want to work on because uh, you have l fundamental limits over mm. here and mm. there. I don't know physically how you go about, like it's all kind of hand wavy to me that they okay. were able to limit this and uh, that, that probably takes us on a much more detailed digression, but just for, to indulge me. So yeah. what are they actually doing? Were they perfecting it's, it's, a crystal? I mean, what they, what they did is really quite quite simple it's got to do so with perfecting the crystal you would you know you could grow a crystal of um, gallium arsenide by a more or less expensive technique if you use some kind of epitaxial growth like molecular beam epitaxy you can put every atom in the right place more or less if you made a sort of if you were to use a, a cheaper technique like maybe liquid phase epitaxy or something or so you um, put it in CVD. the right place in such a way that it can somehow inhibit this, this... No, 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 this is about making a perfect crystal. So two things, how do you, how do you, so you, how yeah. do you slow down the non-radi, the avoidable losses? Right. You, you reduce the avoidable losses by having really good quality material, really yeah. good quality crystal. So if the crystal has some defects, they'll act as they may act as recombination centers. Okay. And then you would also have good interfaces. But then what they did to, to, to slow, to reduce the rate of, of radiative recombination right. was to 
um, change the optical design of the solar cell. So typically, uh, if you made a solar cell from gallium arsenide, you would have a big lump of gallium arsenide, or that you'd call the substrate, and then you would grow your active layers on it. You'd have a doped layer, and then you'd have another doped layer, and you would do this very carefully. And then, and then that would be it, but you'd still have the substrate. And if you have um, a layer of semiconductor and another layer of semiconductor, and this one is absorbing light and emitting light, it's quite easy for it to emit light into the piece behind. Yeah. But let's say you could take it off and there was air behind. Yeah. Then that doesn't happen so easily because of total internal reflection. This has got a large refractive index and the air has one. So you trap the light. And that's what they did. It's, it's, it's a really cool, cool idea. Cool. And they made it. So the idea was known, but they made it work right. by a, a technique called epitaxial liftoff. And, and you know, so, but it only makes sense to invest effort in doing that when you've already dealt with non radiative recombination. You yeah. know, because if, if, you're, if, if radiative recombination is 0.001% of the problem, it doesn't matter if you make it less. But if it's half the problem, then it matters. You had astutely pointed out that I was asking two questions simultaneously. <laughs> they didn't actually have a lot to do with one another. Um, so, so let me now direct you into um, what's happening with these organic cells. Yeah. And then later on, we can talk about an ideal solar cell and so forth. So yeah, what? yeah. And I mean, may maybe just to give some context to this. So I was working in, in the field of you know, gallium arsenide based solar cell designs for six or seven years. Um, and I decided um, at some point that although the science is really fun, um, I couldn't see those sorts of solar cells being used in a widespread way because they're, you know, it, it's very it's a very intensive process to make such good quality crystals and so on. And I was then, and the other thing, part of context, is that at the time, um, solar cells were expensive. And so there's a lot of interest in finding cheaper semiconductor materials. That was my motivation. Yeah. I wanted to go in the direction of something that um, was never going to perform as well as gallium arsenide or, or the best silicon solar cells, but might be able to deliver electricity more cheaply. So that, that, was, that was me, that was what I wanted to do. The motivation isn't so much looking at it just in terms of ideal efficiency, you're looking at it in from a pragmatic perspective of uh, how, how can we yeah, yeah. circumvent the, the, the real world constraints of cost and so forth to be able to come up with materials mm -hmm. that can actually deliver things more cheaply. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I had, I, I had a sort of a, 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 I still had an interest in the area that I didn't do a postdoc in, which was the optical properties of um, porous, um, metal oxides used in disensitized solar cells. I, I had, you know, two offers, right. and I and I and this is the one I didn't follow. And then uh, at some point in the sort of mid '90s, I discovered that uh, I had a, a colleague at Imperial College who was in the chemistry department, a guy called James Durant, and he was doing research on, on 
uh, a new type of solar cell, which happened to be the same type of solar cell that I had had been interested in earlier. And so I got talking with him, and uh, you know we agreed that there were a lot of problems that could be addressed with the help of a, a physicist and somebody who understood modelling. And I wrote a fellowship proposal to work in that area, and it was granted, and then I started to work in that area. So this then brought me into a completely different class of material, so we could call them... Um, you could call them different things. You might call them molecular-based photovoltaic materials. It's probably a, a good enough name. Um, but also materials that were processed from solution. So the sort of motivational thing is that the way of making the layer of semiconductor was completely different and uh, much less cost-intensive and much less energy-intensive than how you would make high-quality gallium arsenide or, or silicon. Um, and then the kind of exciting thing about it was um, there were examples of systems that worked and nobody really knew why. Mm. <laughs> you know, so you, you, you sort of have the situation where there, you know, there were cases, there were examples of, of, of systems that were generating uh, quite a good photocurrent. But if you think about it and you think, you know, but this is the same stuff that you use in toothpaste and <laughs> it was just made you know, you've got all, you know, I mean, wh why does it work? Why, why you know, we, we know, you know, that if you have crap silicon, you'll have a crap solar cell. So when you make a dye-sensitized solar cell with crap titanium dioxide, why don't you have a crap solar cell? So it was, there were things like that that were very interesting. And um, sort of underneath it, really, is the idea that the, the you know, if, if, you, if you at that time go to a semiconductor and try to understand how does a solar cell work, and the book will tell you about this is a PN junction and this is how a, a PN junction works. And that's fine, but these systems were not bent based on PN junctions. Right. Um, in any solar cell, you need some asymmetry to drive photocurrent. Otherwise, you won't have a solar cell. You can have photogeneration, but you won't have direction. You must have direction. And in the conventional solar cell, you get the direction by using a PN junction that gives you a... a sort of a, a preferred direction for current flow. And in the more novel types of solar cell, that, that directionality, it could come through choosing two different electrode materials, or it could come through, you know, just the way in which the, the layers are organized. And at the time that I got involved in this area, uh, first in dye cells and then in organic solar cells, so, um, just to explain what they were, the, the first class of materials, you, you have a reasonably complex system where you have, um, if you like, there is kind of one electrode which is a metal oxide, there's something which interacts with the light, which is a dye, a dye molecule, which is attached to the surface of the titanium dioxide, and then there is an electrolyte. So the um, the, the contacts are made to the titanium dioxide and the electrolyte, and those are obviously very different, um, and light is absorbed in the dye, and then there's a charge transfer process, which is a bit like what happens in photosynthesis, mm. and because of the asymmetry of the electrodes, you have a direction and you get photocurrent. So that was a very interesting system, a slightly 
complex system to understand because there's a lot going on. And then as I, after I'd been working in that field for a, a, a few years, maybe about three years or so, then uh, we started to, I started to have the opportunity to work on organic semiconductors, uh, where your device, it would be, I suppose the simplest way of thinking about it is that you have a layer of this organic semiconductor, and here organic means made from um, conjugated molecular materials, so made from molecules, but they're molecules whose electronic structure means that they can interact mm. with um, visible light. So if you think of plastics, you might think of something like polyethylene, and it's normally transparent, um, but we would be working with conducting plastics, and, and the difference is it's simply the difference in the arrangement of the atoms, it means they're, they're part of this density of states I talked about earlier, um, is the, the gap is smaller, there are states which are closer together across the gap. So you can bridge that gap with visible photons, right. and then you can also emit visible photons if you make a, a light emitting diode from those materials. And organic, so that's, you know, the, 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 the and then the, this is the, so the idea there is that uh, if you can make a molecule, like a polymer or a small molecule, act like a traditional semiconductor, then you could do lots of electronic things and optoelectronic things um, with having, having, having made the manufacture much easier. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of interest all through the 2000s up until today um, in using organic semiconductors for applications in optoelectronics and one of the big areas was in photovoltaic energy conversion. So it's another system, it doesn't work in the same way as a disensitized solar cell, in some ways it's a bit simpler because there are not so many things going on. In the semiconductor layer you need to have two things different things and you need to have and the, the first thing that happens after the photon is absorbed the first thing that must happen to get current is a charge transfer event which again it's like what happens in photosynthesis it's like what happens in solar fuels photon absorption charge transfer but once that's happened then you have the usual processes right. um, so so I so I, I got interested in that area, you know, partly I was strongly motivated to, 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 to sort of try to develop, um, you know, to play a role, I suppose, in developing solar energy conversion technology that would be more accessible, that would have the chance to grow more quickly, because of course by, by, by this time everybody was aware, I was well aware of the need to develop renewable energy generation. And it was also scientifically interesting in that there were a lot of unknowns, but I had a background in solar cells. I thought I can help with this. A lot of the other researchers at the time would have come more from chemistry and materials background. And then the other things I had the opportunity, because first of all, I had the contact with a colleague who was working on dye cells. And then later on, when, I, when my post was made permanent, that was because we had a new hire in my department who was one of the pioneers of mm. polymer optoelectronics, who was a guy called Donald Bradley, and he came to Imperial to start up a group. And when he did that, um, I was appointed to a permanent position. And, and then I 
I worked quite intensely on organic electronics for solar cells. Uh, as you're talking not only about your work, mm -hmm. but um, even when you were mentioning the previous work that was done on gallium arsenide, mm -hmm. making mm -hmm. better crystals and so mm -hmm. forth, one thought um, that I had was how much of this can be done by computer simulations and how much, it's maybe a basic material science type of question, right? I understand that things are very complicated. Mm. I understand that there are a lot of unknowns and that there are so many different um, the variables that are going on, not all of which are even uh, known or assessed, let alone their interactions. Yeah. Um, so it's messy, complicated stuff, with, yeah. which is interesting because there are all sorts of possible routes and surprises yeah. and, and mysteries and so forth. Um, but I can see that, um, that, you, that one could be of a persuasion of, well, I'm going to model this based upon these assumptions and I'm going to yeah. build more and more sophisticated models or I'm going to go into a lab and do whatever people in labs do. Uh, they, they, they do things somehow using mm -hmm. these, these, you know, ataxial beam, blah, 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 things that I'm sure are yeah. extremely impressive. Um, but I don't have a clear sense of, well, I, I don't have a clear sense of any of it, but I, I don't, I don't really understand how they, how they interact. And, and, and in particular, let's just talk about your role and your inclination. Are you, yeah. are you more on the, on the modeling side of things? Are you, do, do you spend equal amounts of time um, playing around with things in the lab? How does it work for you? Well, um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very much of the persuasion that computer modeling has got a role to play. Um, but I equally strongly say what you get out of a model has got to be validated against experiments, otherwise it's more or less worthless. Um, and I do, I do, so my training, my background is, is in computer modeling and that was my way in to solar cells, but, it, but at some point um, I started to supervise um, students who go into the lab. I don't go into the lab very often myself, I have done it, <laughs> but it's not where my training is, you know, and I, I wouldn't necessarily be very safe. Um, but I mean, about half of my group would be doing experimental work and half doing simulation, and then some of them, um, these sort of more uh, exceptionally, there'll be some who do both quite comfortably. Right. And there are not there are not many people who there are many people who would like to do both, but usually the experiment wins in terms of consuming their time. Sure. Um, so I think. Simulation is, so, I mean, in, in the area of making solar cells with molecular materials, it's very um, potentially very uh, helpful because the family of materials that you might have is infinite, you know, I mean, with silicon or gallium arsenide, we go back to the old days, there were just a few semiconductors and then you needed to understand silicon, you needed to understand germanium, you need to understand gallium arsenide and so on. But it wouldn't be a trivial task to say, I want a new stable solid state compound semiconductor, um, you know, and then ask a computer, how shall I arrange, what, what right. atoms shall I choose and how shall I arrange them? That's a difficult task, but it's much easier to say, I've got carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, sulfur, um, oxygen, um, and of course there's a lot of know-how as well. Which conjugated molecule shall I make that will have a band gap of 
one point right. four EV. Right. I mean, th this you can do yeah. with the computer. Just because the, you know, in every case, of course, you you have to solve Schrodinger's equation and and so on. But they're smaller systems, yeah. and and the beauty the beauty the beauty from the point of view of, um, I suppose, the the the, the modeler is it in the case of organic semiconductors, molecular semiconductor materials, if you understand the properties of the molecule, and that's something which is quite accessible with computer methods that we have, you do understand a lot about the properties of the solid. Not everything, but a lot. Um, whereas, you know, if we take the analogy of gallium arsenide, you could understand everything there is to know about gallium, but it tells you nothing about gallium arsenide. It's, yeah. a, different, it's a different beast. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of potential, and, but, it, but if we... If we were just to say to do to take the completely empirical trial and error approach, you know, there would be far too many materials and far too much data. And, you know, the big risk would be so let's say, you know, you make ten thousand materials and you trial them all with some test that you devise, you might miss the good ones. Mm. Um so but but if you just have the computer and you never consult, you never do the experimental test, then you, you could have everything wrong. Sure. Because whilst there are methods you can use, um, they don't always get things right. And, you know, the, the, the computer model will give you exactly the same, uh, you know, you, 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 you give it uh, garbage starting conditions and it will give you a garbage result. So, so, so it's very, very important in my view to, to link the two together. And that's been, it's really been, I suppose, the my you know continuing thing, if you like, in my work through in, in, in different materials for solar cells, more continuous than the material system is the, the continuity of trying to relate the sort of the the chemical physical structure of your materials to the properties and then to uh, what it would deliver in a device, the current voltage, the performance characteristics. And there are some systems where this can be can be understood, but we're not really at the point um, where you could design and get it right. <laughs> you know, where you could, you, you know, what you, I mean, a lot of people have the ambition to get there, um, but I don't think we're at that place yet because some parts of, if, if you take the case of solar cells, there are some parts of the process which are just the, just the, the mechanisms are not well enough understood, and if you don't have a good understanding of the mechanism, you can't make a good model. But it, it seems to me, and maybe this is just my own predilection, but it seems to me that if one approaches the question from how does one make the ideal solar cell, yeah. um, see I'm getting to this other question, I yeah. inadvertently yeah. merged in, um, and one starts thinking, what are the constraints that uh, previously seemed insurmountable, mm that we might be able to develop new techniques to overcome. So my exceptionally limited understanding is one way of trying to address, for example, this issue of uh, photons that have energy that is less than the band gap mm -hmm. is to have this, mm -hmm. these tandem things. There are all sorts mm -hmm. of different ways yeah, that one sure. is saying, okay, let's um, that's a problem with our conventional assumptions of the way these things are built. Let's see if we can somehow circumvent that. Yeah. Um, and if one tries to build solar cells, at least in the mind, from that perspective, it seems like 
the first port of call would be to build a computer model and a simulation of how that might be done. Yeah. And, and then obviously try to, uh, once you have that working or working to some extent, then try to build things in a lab or, mm -hmm. or, or check it. Is that, is that the right approach that people would have that it would, or, or, or would it work equally well for people to say, well, what you're trying to do is something that we've seen with some material somewhere and we should tweak those materials first and then try to, try to do it. Do you understand? It's not a terribly well-posed question, but what I'm saying is if, if you're, let me try again. If you're interested in building the ideal solar cell, yeah. it seems logically reasonable to me to start off with on the computer simulation side and then go to the lab rather than the other way around. Would you agree or disagree with that? I, th I agree it seems logical. Um, in practice both happen, you know, so with any goal there, there's, there's seldom one group pursuing it. Usually there are many, many groups around the world pursuing it and they'll come from different, you know, scientific cultures, different disciplines and so on. Some of them will be the let's try things in the lab. Some of them might have been doing something else and they discovered this by accident. Some of them would be going with the goal of doing that and they may have started with simulation. Whether, whether it makes sense, whether it's the, the kind of best route to start with a computer simulation and then try out the design that you optimized, really depends on how good your models are of the materials that you, the material group that you want to use. If your models are not that good, it may be more, you could do that, but it might be more effective to sort of build parts of the structure and test the things. So with, with things like, you know, how do you, um, you, know, you know, make the ideal solar cell? How would you capture and convert the maximum amount of energy? The concepts are more or less known, and they've been known for a while. Um, but, but some of the concepts, so the one you mentioned, which is the tandem, is, is the... If you want to overcome the detailed balance limit and get more than 33% out of your solar cell, you have, to, you have to deal with this problem of the panchromatic versus monochromatic. And the, the, the way that you can, in practice, deal with it quite well is by making a tandem, um, where some light is absorbed in a large band gap, some light is absorbed in a small band gap material, and they both do conversion. Um, and then you, 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 you add together uh, the voltages, you, 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 I mean, there'd be different uh, uh, ways of building a tandem system, but that can be done. But then there are other concepts that are a bit more ambitious. They would require more exceptional properties of the materials. Um, and I think for, for, for that goal, uh, more needs to be done in demonstrating, sort of establishing exactly what properties you want from the materials and then demonstrating that some materials have those properties or that some materials might have those properties. Yeah. And I mean some people are pursuing those goals with computer models and some are pursuing them with the experimental research but the experimental research will usually be based on some concept, at least conceptual model, you know they'd have a, a goal Right. In terms of what they're looking for. Right. I, I'm not sure if I'm answering your, your you question. No, you did. You did. You yeah. were you were you were exceptionally diplomatic. You see, I'm getting you to say I'm a modeling person, <laughs> and so these experimental guys—they're all derivative at some level, uh, which of course is not true. But I was expecting uh, some kind of bias. But uh, 
but um, no, I, I, I'm just joking, obviously. I appreciate the fact that, that you need to come at this problem from both ends. It, the material science, when I was younger, um, material science just struck me as completely uninteresting. Lots of things <laughs> did when I was younger, and I just thought, oh, these guys, you know, they're just throwing stuff together or whatever. It's not really very interesting. Um, but well, the, the when I was an undergrad, I mean, you know, I... You, I mean, I think it's the same now, you know, even with our undergrads, you know, they kind of, at least in the UK, they grow up to think that the cream of the cream of uh, physics is the kind of, you know, co cosmology-oriented, very, very fundamental theoretical physics. And, of course, the thing is, there's not that much... Uh, to do. To do. <laughs> But, yeah. but if you step back from that and then think, but there's, you know, all of electronics, there's all of photonics, there's all of engineering, there's all of energy conversion, you know, and then all, you know, other problems that we haven't talked about, like to do with water and health and communications and so on. There's so much to do. Yeah. Um, but as an undergraduate, I didn't really get it, yeah. you know. I mean, it was, I sort of had my own passion, but it, it wasn't really until later that I kind of grew, grew into understanding. Actually, you know, you take somebody who's got a, a training in physics and maybe an appetite for, you know, problem solving or building models, and there's so much they can do. Yeah. Um, but respectfully, it's even more than that. So yeah. that's certainly true. Yeah. Uh, um, and maybe that had been, I don't know if it had been impressed upon me, but I think people had tried to impress it upon me that, oh, well, you could do this and you could do that and there are all sorts of problems. But what I had certainly failed to appreciate is there are so many things that are also really intellectually interesting. Yeah. I mean, the fact that things are messy or unclean or yeah. however, whatever you'd want to say, um, does not in any way, shape or form mean that they are intellectually uninteresting. In fact, yeah. it could be quite the contrary because yeah. we don't understand exactly how these things fit together. We yeah. don't know what's really going on. That this notion that, that only the, the pure crystalline temple of you know, the ultimate yeah. laws of yeah. the universe, blah, 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 are the only things that are, that are intellectually uh, stimulating. It's just completely false. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it's a subjective statement, but um, at least for for this subject, uh, I have come to appreciate the fact that there are all sorts of really inter intellectually stimulating mm. avenues. Um, and uh, as you say, there's this hierarchy, certainly when I was an undergraduate, there's this hierarchy of, yes, well, you know, the, the, the little people may go off and, and, and mm. help society, but we, you know, the, the, the great minds are the ones <laughs> that sit, the, sit back and try to understand the universe as a whole and the, the, the grand orchestration and all the rest of that sort of thing. Um, and in fact, the greater you are to some extent, the less you have to do with society because yeah. you just sit in your room somewhere contemplating the universe. Um, and those are the only questions that are fit for great minds to mm. contemplate. And I think that's, that's wrong not only insofar as many great minds are also interested in helping society, but it's also wrong in the implication that, um, that there aren't all sorts of really incredibly interesting, intellectually stimulating mysteries out there mm -hmm. and problems that need mm -hmm. to be addressed in, in these other areas. But I'm, I'm ranting, so, uh, and I, I suspect, at least I hope that I'm preaching to the, to the choir to some extent. <laughs> um, but I do want to talk yeah. a little bit about yeah. sociological relevance. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think 
um, the, the physics is fantastic and the engineering is very interesting and it's also the interplay between the two and the fact that it's not clear where boundaries lie is, mm -hmm. is a stimulating uh, topic. But one of the things that struck me when I, um, when I read some of the material you sent was just how strong the possibility is mm. for solar energy writ large mm -hmm. to replace our standard fossil fuel economy. Mm -hmm. Now maybe I'm just easily swayed mm -hmm. and you're a very persuasive writer and, and, and you know other people who are very persuasive. But there were numbers like uh, we expect by 2050 that 16% of, 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 uh, of energy generation will come through solar sources and so forth. I mean, very, something like that. I don't yeah. know if those are the right numbers, but, IEA, yes. but really, really, uh, um, it, it seems as if there's very strong potential yeah. for that. Um, and I had always been very naively under the view that, uh, well, maybe not very naively, naively, maybe whatever. But I had I had always been under the view that one of the main problems with all sorts of uh, solar energy was that, yeah, when they're actually working, they have this obviously very small carbon footprint. But but all of the effort required to make the stuff um, turns out to have require an awful lot of energy to make it to begin with so that by the time you actually make the stuff you've already had to invest so much energy beforehand and so they're not very efficient in the long term and so forth but my sense is that things have been improving in terms of energy efficiency by leaps and bounds mm -hmm. um, and so I should lead to a question at some point I've learned mm -hmm. that's what I should be doing um, I could comment on what you just said. Okay, <laughs> well, sure. Well, why, why don't you comment, and I'll, I'll, I'll come up with other. But I mean, tell me your question, well, and then I'll, well, I'll, the, the, it might not. Well, well, one of the things is I don't think this is, if this is true, and mm -hmm. since I'm talking about material that you wrote and some other people who are yeah. of similar mindset to you wrote, I'm sure you're going to uh, be sympathetic to. Um, are you surprised by the fact that? most people don't seem to be quite as aware of this as they as they perhaps should be. I mean, when I'm reading this, I think, geez, this is actually feasible. This is achievable. If we put our minds to it, we should be able to actually, at the, at the rate that energy efficiency is, is moving, we should be able to, to go full bore towards an economy which in 30 or 40 years is, is very definitely solar based. And why aren't we talking about this and putting vast amounts of, of, of revenue here? Um, okay. <laughs> so I'd say it's, I mean, the, the last thing that you say that we're heading towards, and we are, I mean, it's happening. Um, the, if you look at the trajectory of the rate of growth of installation of solar power, it's it has exceeded, you know, if you look at what the prediction was of, let's say, the IEA or some other agency, maybe five or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, they would have predicted a growth, an exponential growth like everything else. But the exponent is the, the, the installation has been growing more rapidly. It's been overtaking prediction. And, you know, if we compare, I mean, I've seen data where you could look at the same comparison of, you know, actuality versus, you know, 15 years ago prediction for wind or for nuclear, wind is about on course and nuclear is a bit less. Solar is exceeding expectations. Um, so that is, is, that is happening. Then to, to sort of dig, dig a little bit into 
what the factors are and, and why it's happening. So in your introduction, you, you mentioned the concept of energy return on efficient, on, on um, energy return on investment, which is the idea of how much energy is generated by something if you do a complete life cycle study of how much energy is invested in it. And I mean, there certainly was a kind of fairly prevalent view amongst some, and maybe going back 20 years or so, that solar cells had such a big energy tag attached to them that you wouldn't get much out. I mean, that wasn't, I don't think it was true even then. Mm. Um, but what has definitely been happening, so in terms of, of figures, I mean, the, the, the uh, uh, a figure that's used to sort of quantify this is the energy payback time, which is how long you would need to run your solar panel for before it has generated as much energy as was invested in it. And, the, and a, a solar panel would typically be operated for maybe 20 years. That's, that's, that's what the manufacturer would expect as a, as a sellable lifetime, but they might run for longer. Um, but a typical uh, value for the, for the energy payback time would be about a year. It depends where you make it. It depends where you got, you know, if it's made in China, it would be more because you would have used coal. If you make it in Norway, it would be less because you would have used hydro as your energy source. And then it also matters where you use it. If you use it in the Sahara, energy payback time is shorter. If you use mm -hmm. it in Iceland, it's much longer, etc., etc. But I mean, that, but it's still, no, that's 5%. But, 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 no, but no matter what, yeah. um, what you invest in, in, in you know, classical silicon modules is much less than what you get out. There's no question about that. Um, there is, but then when you look at new technologies, and it's one of the reasons why, um, you, you know, it's, 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 it's one of the, 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 the factors that would sort of favor things like organic or sort of low, sort of, let's say, easily manufactured solar cell materials, you can reduce that even more. You, you invest less energy. And, and, and why that might be attractive would be that if we look at, you know, the situation that we're in um, and the essential, the very, very urgent need to stop emitting, uh, to reduce carbon emissions, I mean, not over the long term, but over the next, over you know now. I mean, you know, with it, with a, with a, with a, you know, with a plan which is going to bring emissions down to nearly zero within the next twenty years or so. I mean, otherwise, I mean, I mean, this has got to be done. Um, if you use a technologies which have a low uh, energy investment, then they're going to contribute more quickly. You know, your trajectory will be faster. And so, in this sort of situation where the energy mix has got to change. I mean, the dynamic factors do matter. So that's, that's, that's one, would, one comment to make, is energy return and investment is already good, but, there, but one of the things about some of the new non-silicon technologies is it can be even better, yeah. quite a lot better, depending upon, you know. So, so that, that's a factor to, to bear in mind. Um, in terms of, you know, is it, is it a reality that, that, that solar power could, could generate a large fraction and I, I think you re referred to um, kind of the studies like people like the IEA would have done so you know they, they every year the IEA publishes a world energy outlook where they look at their projections for um, you know um, uh, how the energy mix will be made up if you're going to stick to 
a two degree scenario or if you're going to do business as usual or different things. And if you look at the, the sort of the low carbon scenarios, um, solar is picked up in the models. And the models that they use are calibrated against what has happened, you know, um, and against, by and large, I would say, reasonably conservative, um, you know, estimates for how things will continue. And there's a lot of experience now in solar. So, I mean, it, the, 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 the installed capacity in the world has been growing at a rate of over 30% for about 20 years. I mean, it's massive. Um, you know, and long sustained. Um, and so it's quite likely it's going to do that next year and the next year and the next year. Um, at some point, it'll, it'll start to so it'll have to slow down. But there, there's... So the, you know, the, the projection of having, um, you, know, you know, 15 or maybe 20% of uh, electricity coming from solar sources in 2040, 2050 is not really ridiculous. I mean, at the moment, so in the UK, um, I had to do the calculation for 2015, and it was something like 2.3% of electricity, of the electricity consumed was but even that, even that is an astounding figure to me in this country where, you know, you're likely to see this yeah. in the sun, you know, for maybe four hours a week or something like that. I mean, I mean it, it, I'm exaggerating a little. I think you would probably know better. But it's, yeah. it's not a country that one would necessarily identify solar. <laughs> yeah, but the, I mean, the big, you know, the, 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 the great example, you know, to sort of counter expectation is Germany, you know, which has, you know, so, until... It was one of the leaders. I mean, China's taken over now, but I mean, Germany has a long, long experience, and they, they're, it, the average insulation is pretty much like ours, but it was enough. Um, you know, so the, the, and I mean, the reason why, I mean, because there just is so much solar energy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you, comp if you make a very, very basic calculation and you think, okay, you know, the Earth uses about, you know, in terms of an average, power, maybe something like two terawatts in electricity, um, and the sun is generating, you know, the earth is receiving thousands of terawatts of electricity. Yeah. I sure. mean, so you don't need that much um, at that level. I mean, I mean where, where the issues are, I mean, so I would not say that energy return on investment is an issue. It, it, I don't think it really ever was, and it definitely isn't now. But now, and nowadays, even the cost is not an issue because solar, the, at least the, the cost of the solar panel is, is not really an issue because the costs have come down a lot through market expansion. But the, 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 the places where the issues are, I mean, so there's one sort of more a sort of socio-economic issue, which is kind of changing behaviour and changing infrastructure, which has got a cost attached to it. Um, but, but, but a more, you know, uh, sort of, I don't, I don't want to say which is more pertinent, but I'm going to say a more pertinent, I mean, the, the other one. Uh, that I want to talk about is is the the issue of availability and matching supply and demand. Um, so, you know, if you look at your generation from a solar generator, it'll have a certain pattern, and if you look at when people need electricity, that'll have a different pattern. And if you want to um, uh, convert, you know, if you want to make that energy available, 
um, at a different time. You either have to store it or your solar generator needs to be part of a big, reasonably flexible power system where you can mix with other things and then sort of use a combination of sources to right. match demand. And I think you do need, I think we need, I think actually think we need both, um, but I don't see it as a, a problem. No. And it's also <laughs> and related, of course, to other renewables. Yeah. I mean, you have the same yeah, yeah, issues. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the, so, so in the case of the United States, for example, there was a very nice study done by a group in um, NCOA, is that right, in Colorado, sort of, um, atmospheric Observation Institute, and they had a lot of data on wind and solar, and they were able to do a calculation to show that um, if you had, uh, you know, very efficient distribution across the whole of the United States, that wind and solar basically complement each other, and you could meet power needs without needing something else. Right. Um, you couldn't say the same for Britain because it's little. Um, although it has a lot of wind, there wouldn't be enough. Uh, you couldn't say the same for India because it has a lot of sun, it doesn't have enough wind. But, but if you take large geographical regions, there is you know, improved um, uh, matching. Right. And, and so you know, that's one area where sort of people working in energy technology are very aware that they need to. So the distribution to kind of um, uh, reduce the variability of the sort of the, the matching, so improve the matching of supply and demand is one area. Where there's in the other area where there is, you know, there's, there's a lot of research going on and it is making very good progress is in energy storage. Right. I mean, um, it's, it's and in the end, I mean, solar isn't going to be 90%, but it's completely reasonable for it to be 20% of, of or more of the supply of a zero carbon emissions electricity system. Well, presumably it depends on where the end is. I mean, if we're talking yeah. 2050, you can understand that. But if yeah. we're talking 2250, I'm swayed by just the basic arithmetic arguments about how much energy mm. is landing on the earth from mm. the, mm. The, that, that could be harnessed potentially, mm. even mm. if one is taking 33% or, or whatever, yeah. whatever yeah, yeah, the yeah, threshold sure, is. Or 5%. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, orders of magnitude more than than, yeah. than 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 we need, even if we ramp up those needs by a factor of two or three or four or whatever yeah. as the population increases. Um, so, in terms of basic, well, there's the demand matching issue, but then in terms of the the technologies jiving, it seems to me there are specific cases, as you had mentioned, when wind and solar might complement one another, uh, but then. As you had also alluded to, there's the overall issue of as people are in investing their time and energy and expertise in smart grid technologies mm -hmm. and improving batteries and so forth, all of these things complement each other mm -hmm. for the overall mm -hmm. uh, effect. It's, it, to me, um, my own perspective is that um, if I'm out to reduce carbon emissions, I have um, I have a lot more confidence in properly targeted investment and in research and development um, in the scientific community through all of these different areas mm -hmm. rather than trying to change behavior of particular individuals. Because I, I just personally, I think, I'm not suggesting that that's impossible, yeah. but I just think it's a lot harder and 
uh, and that may be pessimistic, but the optimistic side from my perspective is I get a sense that this is this is feasible. I mean, we, if if people have years ago, people talked about uh, you know a Manhattan Project for mm -hmm. Energy or this mm -hmm. sort of thing. But if we were to have He's a still talking about it. okay it's the Apollo Project. Okay. <laughs> But a global consensus, or at least a large part of the world, yeah. that would really be motivated to um, to develop uh, a spectrum of these technologies, mm -hmm. it seems like this is something which is is, is quite feasible. Mm -hmm. uh, but just in terms of the way that progress has been made, if you follow the curves, as you were saying before. So my next topic then is, okay, well, how do we actually go about doing this? So you mentioned Germany, and my understanding mm -hmm. is that one of the ways that Germany has be, has become a leader, um, or one of the leaders at any rate, is mm -hmm. through a, a coherent program of subsidies mm -hmm. and, and, and government programs to encourage research and innovation as well as actual uh, building and development of infrastructure mm -hmm. and so yeah. forth. Um, is it just that simple <laughs> or is it more complicated? Okay, so if the, if the question is um I thought I asked a question this time. You see, I, I, I tried really hard to come to a, come to yeah, a specific Yeah, I suppose question. I wanted to... I, well, your question is, is it that simple? That was your actual question. And then to that answer, I could, e I could either say yes or no. And I think my answer is yes, um, except I'm not sure whether what the is it that simple is about. But there is a question, which is, if we see this is where we've got to go, and this is what's got to happen for it to go, um, does it make more sense to invest in technologies that may make it cheaper or more attractive and do basic research and then rely on that developing innovations and reducing causing cost reductions or does it make more sense to create incentives you know to work on policy and um, like like in the case of the German PV program or many other countries PV programs or you know and, and sort of invest in incentives that would encourage people to start adopting a new technology or to be, you know, less spendthrift with their energy or so on and so forth, which should you do? And I'm going to say both. <laughs> um, and you can see, if you look at the sort of the historical development of silicon, you know, photovoltaics, for example, because there's a lot of data, and we know how, you know, growth of sort of the installed capacity has grown and almost all of it has been silicon. But we also know what's been happening along the way in terms of manufacture. And so there have been innovations that are, you know, very fundamental in the design of the solar cell, but there also have been a lot of innovations that came about through manufacturing experience. And so if you rely on work which is done in the lab looking at the fundamentals only, then you lose the opportunity to kind of uh, innovate through experience manufacturing. So I would say both are important, that you couldn't just have policy incentives, right. um, but I don't think you could rely just on basic research. But you also mentioned something else which uh, I certainly hadn't appreciated, which is if you, if you just look at economic incentives, mm. there's also a potential, an inadvertent potential, to sometimes limit aspects of basic research. So my understanding is that if, if governments say, okay, great, we're going to invest in solar energy and mm. we're going to give all sorts of incentives for individuals and corporations and so forth, 
Um, there would be a tendency for, a natural tendency, for the players in that arena to, to, to buy all sorts of present technology and invest mm -hmm. in silicon-based whatever or what have you, um, to the extent that it, it might have pejorative effects on people who are trying some, some other approaches. So mm -hmm. one has to really be careful when one looks at, at the overall yeah. landscape of government investment and incentives and so forth. I mean, that, that, that's right. I mean, this is more or less exactly what happened in Britain in around about uh, 2012, but not, not so much on basic research, but on sort of basic, but, you know, early industrial R&D. So, I mean, I think basic research, like what we do in the lab on the global scale, is relatively cheap, you know, particularly if, you know, I mean, there, we don't require expensive facilities. There are not that many people doing it. But then the, you know, the rollout of ideas into startups and embryonic technologies is, is much more expensive because you need much more people and much more investment. So I think, you know, I think basic research is, you know, there are many, many reasons to, you know, to, to keep basic research alive. Um, and fortunately, it hasn't been killed yet. And I might come back to that. But the, um, the, there is, you know, a policy. So what, what happened in, um, in, the, in the UK, so a, a, a feed-in tariff was introduced in 2010, which was very uh, attractive. It was, you'd say, too much, too, too generous. Mm. Um, and then... So I'm going to ask you just to back and up and in, talk about what a feed-in tariff, just to define what a feed-in tariff okay, is. Okay, so it's a, it's a policy in, incentive. So, it, so, so, so what, what it is, is, it, is that the, uh, you know, a, an individual who invests in a solar PV system would be generating electricity that they can then export to the electric grid, and um, in the when a feed-in tariff is in place, then they're paid for their electricity. But they're paid more for their electricity than they would have to pay for electricity that they get from from the grid. And and the level of the feed-in tariff set in the UK in 2010 was was very generous. And I mean, it could have been you know, continuously reviewed and, and revised, which would be kind of a sensible thing to do, but it didn't quite work out like that. Um, and, and, then, and then this was something that was very, so for a period of time, this was very attractive to, and so, uh, so if you have an investor who wants to invest in solar energy, and they had the choice, uh, let's, in, let's import this conventional technology and make it available and make, profit that way or let's invest in this new technology that might in 10 years be doing something I mean then the, the bias is then switched in favor of conventional technology and then it was very hard uh, for startups and sort of small industry to to, to 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 raise the funding that they need to develop the technology and that that is a it's a definite uh, issue mm. um, where I think you know I think um, you know there is a I think there there is a, a role for science policy, energy policy in sort of enabling or protecting that that level of R and D between ideas in the lab and um, you know something that's strong enough to stand on its own feet. Yeah. So, 
But, but, but the, the other thing I, I was just thinking when you were asking about sort of basic research versus conventional technology, I mean, I think there's ba basic research. Most of the people who've worked with me as PhD students or postdocs, one way or another, are involved either in the in 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 the same sort of streams of research, or in somehow or other in the energy industry. Not all, but but most, a majority. And I mean, all, almost none of them are doing what they did as a PhD student, but they. You know they have they they have a you know th through through doing basic research they develop an understanding and a way of thinking about problems which then as far you know it certainly has enabled them to get jobs and then you have people out there who will in the end be involved in advising um, energy decisions or or you know involved in how a company might develop who have got who understand the basics um, and and I think that's quite valuable. So I think that even you know even if we in the end train more scientists than we're going to need for the technologies that are actually applied, there are benefits from that training that are very hard to measure, but but still sort of tangible. Absolutely. Well, you yeah. certainly need people in public policy who have not just the right background and understanding, but I think one could say uh, an appropriate intellectual orientation mm -hmm. so that they also know how easy or difficult various problems are and, and uh, how they might lend themselves to solutions over various time periods. Mm -hmm. um, because there's a, there are a fair number of snake oil salesmen out there who are saying this, that, and the other thing. And you certainly need to have people who have not only the knowledge, but also the knowledge about where to get the knowledge mm -hmm. uh, to be able to weigh in on, on, on these sorts of debates. So let me ask you now um, a somewhat harder question. If you were Prime Minister of the United Kingdom with a majority government, so you could do roughly whatever you wanted, um, what would you do differently? You're asking me to know a lot more about current energy policy than I think I do. Okay. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't want you to. So let me let me ask. Uh, I, I'm asking more generally. So I'm not saying yeah. would you would you move the bar from here to there, or would you invest an extra two percent in this as opposed to that? Um, and, and let me make it even less personal by, by, by asking you a somewhat different question that's not about the United Kingdom. So yeah. if, you were, if you were queen of the world, as it were, <laughs> or, or if you were the next secretary general of the United Nations, so I'm not looking into the nuts and bolts of little bits of legislation, but mm. how would you both, what do you think needs to be done both in terms of raising public awareness and in terms of investment and government incentives. And government incentives, of course, mean public incentives at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the low hanging fruit in terms of policy would be to, st I mean, there's a lot of other things that I might want to do if I were queen of wherever. <laughs> <laughs> 
But regarding energy policy, I mean, I think you know, one thing is to stop subsidising fossil fuel industry. Um, and okay, there may be economic um, repercussions of that, but they need to be managed. But there is no point, you know, this is pointless. This is one thing. And another thing is, I mean, you talked before about how difficult it is to, to change behaviour. Um, but, you know, I think you can, you know, the, in terms of the kind of the energy cost of solving the, the, the climate problem, the energy cost would be lower if we used energy more efficiently, if we didn't waste energy. And um, you can tell people not to do that, but you could also help it to happen by, you know, encouraging development of energy efficient appliances. So things like this are kind of happening, but they're not happening enough. Yeah. So I think energy efficiency is something that, you know, and it's, it's not quite as sexy as some of the, you know, like new energy technologies, but it's, it's very important in making the problem more manageable. Um, and then, I mean, in, in, in terms of de developing renewables or sort of low carbon sources of power, I mean, I think we know um, what needs to be done. And if you remove some of the almost artificial obstacles in terms of things that, you know, agencies that don't want to change, um, things will, will happen. So, uh, you know, I mean, so, I mean, I would say, as I've already said, in, in terms of, so we, we've talked about solar, but of course there are other low energy technologies. There are, you know, there's storage, there's wind, there's hydro, there's um, fossil fuel together with sequestration. Not completely demonstrated yet, but if it works, this would be very important. There's lots of different technologies, a technology mix. And I think, you know, we, we, we need to share investment between encouraging innovation, encur you know, enabling uh, implementation and, and policy incentives. And, and that's, you know, it's a mix. You can try different things. They might not work perfectly, but you could certainly find something that works. I mean, when we think globally, I think it's important to pay attention to those countries that are not yet locked in to a very... Uh, carbon intensive economy because there are big opportunities there, relatively easy opportunities right. um, for to, so, to sort of encourage and enable the take up of low carbon technologies or energy efficient measures, efficiency measures, because the mistakes haven't yet been made right. <laughs> or yeah. haven't been made to the same degree. It's analogous to the mobile phones to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mobile phones is often used as, as, a, as an analogy actually. In the case of solar in Africa, right. um, so nobody ever bothered getting a landline; <laughs> they went straight. So it's a leapfrog idea. Yeah. Um, so the, the the other thing I think maybe it's sort of we've been talking about basically about electricity, um, but electricity is almost the easiest problem to solve <laughs> in terms of carbon emissions. And if you look at the projections from IEA or others or ones we've, we've done ourselves in the Grantham Institute, I mean, the, the power sector will be decarbonised first, you know, on the basis of what we know about. And then it will take longer to deal with buildings, transport, industry. And um, so I think you would need to, you know, as energy minister, you would need to pay attention to these sectors. Um, and I mean, you know, so renewables can definitely contribute to transport. Um, so I think there's, there's certain, uh, you know, uh, 
there are kind of multidisciplinary problems which will require multidisciplinary solutions. I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that things are not happening, right. but if we look at something like energy use in buildings, I mean, then you need energy technologists and you need buildings people, and this is happening. Um, but but not this, quite this at type the rate of thing should, should should be should be yeah it should be supported should be enabled. Yeah, are are you um, do you find yourself optimistic? Sorry to cut you off. Just open. I think I have to be. Well, that's, that's, that's not quite the same sort of thing as being optimistic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned China a little while ago yeah. and, and how China is now uh, investing heavily in, in solar research yeah. and solar infrastructure. Um, does this give you, a, does, does this and or other factors give you a sense of optimism in terms of moving forwards? I mean, it, it certainly does. I mean, China's an excellent example because, it, I mean, it just demonstrates how quickly things can move. Um, I mean, you know, there, there are, you know, the, there are other drivers going on in China. So, you know, reducing carbon emissions is one, but they're also very concerned about the quality of the environment. And that's one of the reasons why they develop electric vehicles, let's say. But, but they've shown how, you know, with a large economy um, making decisions, I suppose, more at the uh, top-down level, but it has enabled things to, to really develop and change in a remarkable way. I think China's very exciting at the moment. You don't seem as optimistic with some of the other areas when you said that you have to be optimistic. So we could just leave it at that, or, or you could hold forth on your I mean, I think, I think if I wasn't, I mean, I am worried about whether we're going to solve, you know, what, you know, uh, you know, even if all sort of carbon emissions were stopped t today, there are, you know, already, you know, people whose lives have been changed. And, you know, with the sort of, the, 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 I guess, you know, the thing is that it takes a long time for the earth to heat up. Um, and we can stop our behavior today, but it doesn't stop the physical consequences. So I don't know um, if we have enough, you know, it depends what you're going to classify as a disaster. Um, but I think there are already bad effects. I think we can, I'm absolutely confident that we can mitigate the consequences. Um, but I think it's going to be a struggle, you know, because the kind of, you know, we don't have a government that cares about these things at the moment. Um, and the time scale for changing governments is, it's, it's, it's long compared to the time scale on which we need to take action. I mean, the UK government used to be pretty good. Um, in terms of, you know, pushing things along, and they're not now. Um, and I don't know how long it's going to be before, at least in the UK, that's going to change. So, I mean, I, you know, I would be, it would be stupid of me to say it's all rosy and it's all on the way. I mean, I think, you know, it is all on the way in terms of solar will deliver a substantial fraction of our electricity supply in you know, 20 years. I think that's likely even just, just basically from, 
free market economics and nothing else. But but I but I I don't think we should be complacent at all. I think we should be working hard. And you know, if you were to ask me the question, why did I get involved with the Grantham Institute? The reason I got involved with the Grantham Institute was because I thought science is, you know, it's it's a lot of it's it's very interesting. It's very exciting to try to understand how things work. But what difference is it going to make if we can solve the problem and make it work? And that's, that, that, was, that was exactly the question that I went to the Grantham Institute with. And we started to look at things like energy return and investment and do these type of calculations and then have a better picture um, of, you know, because the thing is you could do basic research on many things and I completely support that. But then when you decide which of these ideas from basic research we're going to develop, then you need to know what the potential impact, you need to have a reasonable idea what the potential impact of that innovation would be if it were applied. And it's not a way that, you know, science and policy are not that well joined up really yet. But I think, you know, in the circumstances we have, you, you need to join, make, join those things up. So this is all very commendable, but I fear for you because it seems to me you're on the slippery slope towards a political career <laughs> you, you started off as being excited by, motivated by trying to understand color and light. Yeah. And you've had this very interesting career. You've learned all sorts of things. You've been able to merge scientific research with social relevance and public policy. Yeah. Um, and in a quest to ensure that, in fact, society acts upon these things, you're, you're moving quite understandably and quite commendably further and further towards society. And I think the inevitable think outcome of all of this is that you're going to, you're going to find yourself running for political office. And I, I fear for you no. because you're, you seem like a very <laughs> decent person. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't say further and further. I mean, you just got to that question. I mean, I, my view on this hasn't changed for a long, long time. I, I'm just teasing you. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, you know, I, I mean, whatever I just said, I would have said it 10, 20 years I'm ago, sure. and I'll I, still say it in uh, 10 abs years. Absolutely. Time. I mean, you know, it, it also, I mean, it's also helpful for me. You know, I have, okay, so, you know, bright student comes along, wants to do a PhD. They want to do a PhD in my area because they think this is the area to work if you're going to change the world. You need to have a reasonable idea whether the project that you give them to do is likely to have any value or not in that big picture. And if you don't, then you're being deceitful or, yeah. you know, it, it, it's a responsibility. Sure. Um, two more questions. One's a meta question. Um, one's a question that tacks back to the science. Mm -hmm. um, so I have, I have two questions that I typically ask people. People who are in public policy, I ask them what they would do if they were king or queen of the world, and people that. who were in science, I asked them the following <laughs> question. Because, you, because your work straddles both, I've asked you both. Um, but here's the science question that mm. I ask, which mm. is, if I were God, and I could answer any three science questions that you have, mm -hmm. what would you ask me? Do you mean... Um 
you're God and you understand the mechanisms yes. that we don't yet know. Yes. Or, or any, I, I mean, I, I don't know what else, but I, I didn't let you finish, so maybe there was another part that I would also say yes to, but that's what I was thinking, yes. How does this work? Or, or if I were to do X, what, what would happen? Or uh... You see, that question makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because okay. um, we like to find things out. <laughs> and if somebody tells you the answer, it's not so much fun. I understand. David Paltrow <laughs> told me it was a stupid question, by the way. And that was one of my stupid no, no, questions. No, I wouldn't say it's a stupid question. <laughs> no, I didn't say but you said that. I'm just... Um, <laughs> but I... An equivalent way to ask is what's... Scientifically, what's keeping you up at night? What are the things that you really, that you're really desperate to 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 know? But well, maybe, maybe I've got two things. So two 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 new, area, relatively new areas for me. I'm very sort of engaged with at the moment, but they haven't really developed into. They haven't, for example, developed into publications yet. But one 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 is using. Um, the sort of materials that I understand best, which are molecular electronic materials for photochemical energy conversion, mm. so photocatalysis, and what are the potential advantages and disadvantages of, you know, because you have with molecular materials, you've got the great advantage of design. Um, once you know what you want, uh, you can find a chemist to make almost anything. Um, and, and what are the properties, you know, and so on. So this is one thing. And then the other thing is, is, um, is uh, the sort of electrochemical energy storage question. What mm. are the fundamentals? Of? So this is, this is a, a, technologically it's a critical thing because you need to store your electricity. Well, both of them are relevant to storage. So one is, um, you know, if you like, the... the, the, the the secret to efficient photochemical energy conversion, and the other one is the secret to efficient um, uh, secret photochemical. And the other one, secret the secret to efficient electrochemical energy conversion. Mm. Yeah. So 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 it, so so those are things that I'm very engaged with. Um, I mean, I'm also very. There are any number of other things that might actually keep me awake at night. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to go there. Um, so my last question is a meta question, which yeah. is: Is there anything that we uh, have elided or we haven't spoken enough about, or you'd like to add? I don't think so. No. No. Well, I've had a great time. Thank you very much, okay. Jenny. I really enjoyed right. it. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset. This conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Physics, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Freeman Dyson, Claudia Duram, Lee Smolin, and Jill Tarter. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.